0: If you have a Bible, turn with me to John's Gospel, chapter 7. The Gospel of John, chapter 7. Our sermon text will focus on verses 10 through 39. As you're turning there, let me just say a couple words of thank you. Thank you, first of all, to Pastor Michael. It's a joy to have the privilege of sharing God's Word with your people whom you shepherd here. I've known your pastor since he was a teenager when he was working at the Health and Rec Center when I was a student many years ago. So if you want to know any really bad stories about him, I have a few bad stories to tell. Um, but he's a dear brother. I, I love him deeply. So thankful for what the Lord's doing in his life and His call upon him to preach God's word. And secondly, thank you for the, the the opportunity to share with you and to entrust me with this privilege. What a privilege it is to preach God's God's word with John chapter 7, verses 10 through 39. i want to read beginning in verse 1 for context while our passage will focus on verses 10 through 39. And I'm going to pray again, and then I'm going to just cut loose this morning, okay? Uh, Pastor Michael said there's no time limit here. Uh, I'm used to a, t- a time limit where I preach. Uh, but I'm going to honor the time limit, even if there isn't one, because you guys get hungry, I know, when, uh, when it's lunchtime. But I'm going to just cut loose here in a moment and preach to you, So John chapter 7 verse 1, let's hear the word of God together before we pray. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near... Jesus's brothers said to him, leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. And and keep your eyes on those words for a moment. Did not believe in him. Verse 6, therefore Jesus told them, my time is not yet here, for you any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify that, it wor- that its works are evil. You go to the festival. I'm not going up to the festival, because my time is not yet fully come. And after he said these, this, he stayed in Galilee. Now here are the verses for our sermon text this morning. However, after his brothers had left for the festival, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. Now at the festival, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus and asking, where is he? Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering or murmuring about him. Some said, he's a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the leaders. Not until halfway through the festival did Jesus go up to the temple courts and began to teach. The Jews there were amazed. And they asked, how did this man get such learning without having been taught? Jesus answered, my teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God, or whether I speak on my own. Whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? Let's think of it this way. Why don't you believe in me? That's the question. You are demon-possessed, the crowd answered. Who is trying to kill you? Jesus said to them, I did one miracle, and you are all amazed. Yet because Moses gave you circumcision, though actually did not come from Moses, but from the patriarchs, you circumcise a boy on the Sabbath. Now, if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken— Why are you angry with me for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. At that that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, Isn't this the man they are trying to kill? Here he is speaking publicly and They are not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Christ? But we know where this man is from. When the Messiah comes, no one will know where he is from. Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, Yes, you know me, and you know where I am from. I am not here on my own authority, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him, because I am from him. And he sent me. And this they tried to, and this they tried to seize and this they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Still many in the crowd, listen to this word, believed in him. You notice how the text is moving from unbelief to belief. Now, John brings this to a climax here in a moment, but just keep those words in your mind, belief and unbelief. Those who want to kill him disbelieve. Those who want to receive the word of life, they believe. They said, when the Messiah comes... Will he perform more signs than this man? So the Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. Jesus said, I am with you for only a short time. And then I'm going to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? Will he go where our people live scattered among the Greeks and teach the Greeks also? What did he mean when he said, you will look for me, but you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. Now, right here, these verses, still with me? I know it's a long passage, but these verses are the nerve verses of the text. Herein lies John's main point. I think, in the passage. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, you see it again? Still with me? Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those, watch this, who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not yet been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. This is the Word of God. Let's pray together and ask God to help us. Father in heaven, we are thankful this morning for the supernatural power of your word. And Father, we pray that by the power of your spirit, you would break into this moment and illuminate our hearts and minds with your word and help us to see the glory of Jesus and believe. Help us to see that he gives waters of life and may we drink. And we pray that you would help me by the power of your spirit to preach your word faithfully so that you, Father, through the preaching of your word would be in glory to yourself and glory to your son by the power of the spirit and so that you would shame the devil and his lies today. So, God, we pray that you would help us. In the power of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Let's just dive right in. In my view, the main point of this text is Jesus gives the spirit to all who believe in him. And really, the way John puts it in the Gospel of John 7 is he gives eternal life to all who believe. The Gospel of John talks about eternal life in a variety of different ways ways and one way is he talks about the distribution of the spirit if you'll allow me for a moment to set the text in context of the larger book and then we'll dive into the chapter at hand you remember some of the things you've learned in previous weeks that John wrote this gospel for the purpose of persuading his audience to believe that Jesus is the Christ right the Son of God and that by believing they would have eternal life we know from John chapter 1, don't we, that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then Nicodemus in John chapter 3 he comes to Jesus at night and he says, Nicodemus, Jesus, so Nicodemus, he says, You must be born again, so that you would inherit the kingdom of God. Because God so loved the world that whoever believes in him would not perish, but would have eternal. Life. Numerous things have happened in Jesus' life and ministry up to chapter 7. One thing that's happened is in John chapter 5, he performed a miracle. And every miracle story in the Gospel of John is there to show us, yes, that he is God, right? Yes, that he is the Messiah. Yes, he is the Christ. But also to elicit faith in the hearts of those who see the miracle so that by seeing the sign, they would believe and thereby receive eternal Life. And then in John chapter 6, forms that great miracle of feeding thousands of people. And some people did not believe. And then Peter says to Jesus in response to a question, are you also going to disbelieve? Are you also going to walk away? And Peter says to Jesus, remember, where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. And then your text last week. Here's Jesus going up to the Feast of Tabernacles, chapter 7, verse 2. I'm going to tell the story by walking through the text and punch in verses 37 through 39 on the main verses. Not punch you, but punch the point from the text. So his family members, they don't believe. And they want him, verses 1, as you saw last week, and following to go up to Jerusalem. And he doesn't want to go up to Jerusalem because he knows if he does, he, he might be murdered prematurely. And he's going up to Jerusalem, however, nevertheless, after his family members go, the text tells us. And he's going up at this time called the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles, as you know from last week, is this very important feast in the life of God's people, wherein God is celebrated by the people of God. They were reminding themselves of God's redemption, reminding themselves of God's protection of them in the wilderness. And they celebrated in these tents, these tabernacles, reminding themselves of God's protection of them and God's protection of their of their crop. And there's also hustling and bustling in Jerusalem. Lots of people are there celebrating these feasts and celebrating this particular feast, which lasted for eight days and Jesus goes up to Jerusalem when this feast was about halfway over, verse 14. You see it there in the text? He went up to the temple courts. It's interesting, isn't it? When Jesus goes up to Jerusalem, he's not keeping his messianic identity a secret. He's going there for the purpose of highlighting who he is at the temple courts, During this time in the life of Israel where many Jews would be there listening and observing what he would say, many people taught in the temple course. In fact, if you were a Jew and you were a teacher, that's where you went to teach. You taught publicly, and Jesus goes publicly during the Passover feast, during these feasts of dedication, and during the feast of tabernacles in order to emphasize that he is greater than the tabernacle feast. All that it points to is fulfilled in him. So notice in verse 14, he goes up and he teaches. And the Jews, verse 15, were there, and they were amazed. And they asked, how did this man get such learning without having been taught? How does he know what he's teaching? What did he teach? Probably taught the scriptures, right? We know from the gospel of Luke, at the age of 12, he was in the temple, not only listening to the teachers, but also teaching the teachers. He's answering their questions to him as well as asking questions of them. And they're shocked because Jesus, as far as they know, he didn't go to the Jewish theological seminary of the first century. He didn't go to any famous rabbinic school. He went to his carpenter school with his daddy in all likelihood. But he grew up in a faithful family that taught him the word of God. And he was god in the flesh on the one hand he was an ordinary child but on the other hand he was not he was fully god and fully man at the same time and he's demonstrating a knowledge and insight that only one who is from god could demonstrate who has not been privileged enough to sit under the finest teaching at the finest jewish schools they don't mean this guy is an idiot they mean as far as we know he's never trained like we have trained how does he have this learning? From where does it come? And so Jesus, he stands up and he teaches. And he's teaching at the temple courts where other teachers are teaching. And he we know from the other gospels when he teaches brothers and sisters, he teaches with authority. Not because he's skilled in rhetoric, although I think he had the ability to speak, but because his teaching came with power because it was always accompanied with signs that demonstrated its authority. Are y'all with me this morning? And so he preaches. He teaches, verse 16. And he says, you want to know where my teaching came from? It didn't come from the Southern Baptist Jerusalem Seminary comes from the one who sent me verse 16 anyone who chooses verse 17 to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own authority if you were born of God hear echoes of the Nicodemus story here you would know from where my teaching comes Verse 18, whoever speaks on their own authority does so to gain personal glory. You speak, he says, on your own authority. Now, we do know, don't we, from the other gospels that the teachers, the Pharisees, the scribes, and some of the others, they loved the best seats, didn't they? They loved people to praise them when they pray. They wanted to receive glory from people, honor from people. That's what he means when he says glory, by the way. It's, he's talking about honor. This is an honor-shame context. In Jesus' first century world, you receive honor from those within the community when you uphold those value structures of the community. And you receive dishonor from the community when you did not uphold those value structures. And so Jesus, from their perspective, he is a nobody with no honor and no authority, and yet he's teaching as one who has authority, And he's indicting them for claiming to have authority, but not having any. But instead, they care about glorifying themselves to receive honor from each other. And he says, verse 19, he cuts right to the heart. Is Moses not giving you the law? Yet not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? Now, remember this. Jesus is God. He knows their hearts, doesn't he? You remember back in John's Gospel, chapter 2, I loved it. One of my favorite verses, Jesus, John says that Jesus did not entrust himself to humanity. I love that verse. Because he knew what was in a man. We're commanded to love all, brothers and sisters, but we're not commanded to trust all. Amen? (laughs) Amen. Love your enemies, but you will be a fool if you trusted them. He knows they want to kill him. He knows they have an agenda. His teaching comes with authority, but it also comes like a razor-sharp knife that cuts right to their hearts. And they respond not with eyes of belief. Remember those words? Faith. They respond with accusations. Verse 20, you are a demon Who's trying to kill you? And Jesus basically says, look, I know what y'all been planning because I healed that guy in John chapter 5. I know y'all got upset because I did that on the Sabbath. I did one miracle, verse 21. You see what I'm saying in verse 21 there? Still with me? Now, I got some application at the end. Don't worry. This is not just a running commentary. But I'm a teacher preacher, all right? I'm going to teach a little bit. And then I'll give you the practical payoff at the end. Okay? I did one miracle. Now, he doesn't mean I only did one miracle. He did multiple miracles. But there's one particular miracle that annoyed them, I think, up to this point in the story. And it's the one he did on the Sabbath. Back in John chapter 5. And you all are amazed. But then he goes on, he basically says this. Look, Moses Moses permits us to do good things on the Sabbath, like circumcising your kids. Right? Right? You circumcise a boy, verse 22, on the Sabbath. Now, verse 23, if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? So so if Moses prescribes good to be done on the Sabbath, why do you want to kill me when I did a good thing on the Sabbath? I healed this man. I think implicitly here, Jesus is is suggesting they don't know Moses. They don't understand Moses. In fact, I think that's right because the Gospel of John says, look, Moses points to me. So stop judging, verse 24. By appearances notice verse 25 how how the story is taking an interesting turn now at that point some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask isn't this the man they are trying to kill here he is speaking publicly and they are not saying a word to him have the authorities really concluded that he is the Messiah If, if he is not the Messiah why aren't they doing something about this but on the other hand we know where he's from verse 27 but in Jesus, he doesn't stop teaching. He doesn't shut his mouth. He continues to teach. Notice verse 28. He does it in the temple courts. Jesus goes where the crowds are, folks, to communicate the word of God. He does not live a monastic life in isolation from quote-unquote sinners. He goes where the action is. And he says, yeah, you know me. And notice verse 28. He went to the temple courts, and he didn't use his whispering voice. He cried out. He had a preacher voice. Yeah, you know who I am. That's my paraphrase. (laughs) You know who I am, and you know where I'm from. But I am not here on my own authority, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. And at this, everybody believed. right? Right? No. They wanted to kill him. And then some believed. And then Jesus begins talking about the fact that they're going to, he's going to be around for a little while, and then he's going to die which they don't understand. Have you noticed thus far in the Gospel of John, there is this light darkness symbolism. Jesus is talking about, for example, things like eternal life or living water, John chapter 4. And the woman at the well is thinking about drinking water. She's in the darkness until she believes. Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night, I don't think that's simply a reference to the time of day, though it may be, but it also represents where Nicodemus is spiritually. He's in the darkness because Jesus is talking about the new birth. Nicodemus is talking about being born a second time as a human being. You see it further in the Gospel of John. When Judas decides to betray Jesus, he leaves the house, and John says, and it was night because John is communicating that Judas is in darkness. I think you see that darkness here when these Jews are asking the question verse 35 what does he mean he's going to go away y'all still with me can we sit for a little longer in the text where does this man intend to go Is is he going to go out and preach and teach our people who are amongst the Greeks Now, one translation says, is he going to go to the Diaspora? Is he going to leave Jerusalem and spread his message there? They don't understand what he's articulating about his imminent crucifixion and resurrection. And then you get verse 37. All of that was to highlight this. On the last and great day of the festival. Now, what's so special about that last day? And you have to dip into the Old Testament a bit. You can go read Leviticus 23 on your own, but basically here's what's going on. There is this, there are a couple of different rituals that take place at the day of Feast of Tabernacles. There's this water ritual that takes place, and you have these priests who take water, and they get it from a a pool nearby, and they bring the water to the, altar of the temple, and they sprinkle that water on the altar, and that, that water flows out of the temple. And that imagery is imagery that's flowing out of Zechariah chapter 14. Ezekiel as well, which talks about, those passages talk about a day is coming when water will come flowing from Jerusalem, flowing from the temple. So on that last day of the feast or tabernacles. That water ritual was repeated multiple times. So as Jesus is, look at verse 37. Y'all feel the context here? Jesus on that last festival, the last day of that festival, he stands up when water is gushing throughout the altar of the temple and flowing from the temple. He stands up and he stood and he cries out with a loud voice. Y'all see that water? Anyone who's thirsty, come and drink from me. Y'all feel what he's saying? The water that flowed from the temple promised and Zechariah promised in Ezekiel, he's saying this festival, this ritual, this imagery finds its fulfillment, its realization in the living water I'm giving to anybody who believes. That's what he's saying. There's also a light ritual that's a part of this Feast of Tabernacles, but I'll save that for your pastor to hit on when you get to chapter 8. He intentionally goes up there to reinterpret these events in light of himself. Now, keep this imagery in mind. Assume we're at the temple, and we're praising God in our booths for protecting our people through it, through the wilderness and for providing Food and, and water and for giving us a harvest. We're praising God for that. We're singing songs of redemption. And we're watching the water flow out of the temple, flow from the temple. And this man has the audacity to stand up. He says, y'all want water? that's going to last. You drink from me. And then he starts talking about faith, verse 38. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Now, I'm reading from the NIV. If you're looking at the ESV, it doesn't say from within them, plural. It probably says from within him. So there's a question here we have to ask ourselves. Is Jesus saying, verse 38, whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them that is those who believe or rivers of living water will flow from him to those who believe you see the difference you follow me here the NIV is saying that it it flows within those who believe I think that's true because he goes on and says later in verse 39 But up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. And he gives the Spirit, verse 39, to those who believe. But on the other hand, it seems to me that it's likely that Jesus is emphasizing this point. Yeah, you get the Spirit when you believe. Amen, right? But the one from whom you receive the Spirit in this verse is Jesus. From whom does the Spirit come? The Father or the Son? Yes. But in this text, he's emphasizing it flows from the Son. The the Spirit here represents, yes, the Holy Spirit, but he represents also eternal life. That's what he's saying. He's saying anyone who believes receives the Spirit, that is, receives eternal life. That's what he's saying. This water that's flowing down from this altar, this is not going to purify y'all. You know, I'm a Baptist. And baptism is just not a good thing. It is necessary to proclaim to the world that you've died with Christ and been raised to walk to newness of life. But the baptismal waters do not cleanse you of your sin. They point outwardly to an inward regeneration that you've experienced only by faith in Jesus, John chapter 3. Y'all still with me? To a greater degree, Jesus is saying, look, this water, that was a picture of what god was promising to be realized through the coming of the lord which is the coming of jesus christ and so then ends that part of our of our text let me give you three applications now okay still with me let me apply the text number one The gift of the Spirit is another way of talking about eternal life. And the Spirit, here's the first application, is the guarantee of our eternal life. Have you ever asked yourself this question? How do you know you're a Christian? I ask myself this question a lot. How do I know I'm a believer? Well, am I trusting in Jesus Christ alone? Am I trusting by faith and everything that God has revealed about him? And then secondly, am I obeying him? And if you're obeying him and if you're trusting in him, you can be confident that you have the spirit. Amen? Amen. And the spirit produces in us fruit, one of which is we love one another. Now, you'll hit these passages much later in your sermon series, but John 13, for example, and John 15, they're coming by this, the world will know that we love him. Not by our theology. The, good theology is important. But there are people who have the right facts, but they're going to go to hell because they don't know Jesus. By this, you know that, that the world will know that we love them. But by how many degrees we have. Education's great, but that's not how we know fundamentally, right? By this, we know that we are believers and the world knows that we are believers if we love one another. I'll give you an example of what that love looks like. It looks like a man at this meal, standing at the end of that meal, doing something bizarre, strips naked, takes a towel and some water and gets on his knees and begins to wash dirty, calloused, feet, something a rabbi would never do for his student in the ancient world. To the point that Peter said, no, you can't do this. And Jesus is like, look, if I don't do it, you have no part of me. And Jesus is like, Peter's like, well, why should y'all love me then? Give me a bath. (laughs) To love one another is not this touchy-feely. I like touchy-feely stuff sometimes. I like those movies that give me goosebumps, but that's not a manifestation of love. Love is a selfless, sacrificial action that manifests itself by means in the life of Jesus of him being nailed to a first century cross on behalf of our sins. And it manifests itself through our lives by us living in a selfless, sacrificial way for one another. Galatians chapter 5, for example, verses 13 and following talk about if we love, we fulfill the whole law. And Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 suggests that love is a fruit of the Spirit. And John's gospel talks about abiding in the Son, abiding in the vine, which you can only do by the Spirit. So if the Spirit then, you still with me? Is the guarantee of our eternal life. And if, if the Spirit is evidence that we have eternal life, and if love is a fruit of the Spirit, here's my question for you, new breed. Do you love one another? I don't mean, do you feel some kind of way toward one another? Feelings change. There are times I don't feel like waking up and going to work, but I still go to work because I love having a job. <laughs> do you love one another? Or do you gossip about one another? Do you slander one another? Do you backbite one another? This is not a guilt trip sermon. This is an invitation for you. Everyone who has believed in the Son has drunk from the water of life and has the Spirit And evidence of that spirit living in you and filling you and indwelling you and empowering you and enabling you is, is that you're motivated to to live a selfless, sacrificial love for one another modeled after Jesus' love for us. Which means you must not, you cannot slander, backbite, lie on each other. Seek to destroy each other. So the invitation for you today is if you've done those things, Repent. Turn from your sin and walk the journey of repentance and step with love. Second application of this. It's an invitation to share the gospel. You know, we might be hyped up about the gospel, but here's a question I always ask myself. Do I share the gospel? There was a period of my life where I was working on something a book that was related to the gospel, and I had to pause and I ask myself, wait a second, I'm writing a book about the gospel, but have I shared the gospel with anybody lately? <laughs> and the answer was no. So what did I do? Did I just feel guilty? No, I said, Lord, forgive me, but, but give me opportunities to share the gospel, and I have to be intentional because I'm around Christians all the time, church, where I work, so I can go a long time and never come in contact with unbelievers. And I don't just treat, by the way, unbelievers as evangelistic projects either. They're human beings with a particular dignity endowed upon them by God so I can love an unbeliever even if they don't convert to my Jesus, right? But one of the best ways I can love unbelievers is, and the show that I have, the spirit in me is, open up my mouth and tell them the greatest story ever told. So I was praying recently. I said, Lord, give me opportunities to share the gospel. And sometimes Lord just answers prayers very specifically. And I received a text message from a family member who's not a believer, and I was able to share the gospel with her. And that's one time of, of 50 times that I failed to share the gospel, you see. So this is not, oh, I'm the hero today. No, this is I need Jesus to help me open my mouth and pray and look for opportunities to share the gospel. It's the greatest story ever told. I love telling the story about the greatest college basketball team in the history of college basketball, the University of Because I love telling that story. <laughs> but the most important story is the story about Jesus. And there is deep, unspeakable... Supernatural joy that you have in your soul because you have the spirit and you've drunk from the living water when you open your mouth and share with people that simple message about how to become a Christian and sometimes it's as simple as letting people know you are one now I make no claims of being a good evangelist I'm not but one practical thing I heard one pastor say i won't say the name but if i said his name you you know who he was he said you know one thing i try to do when i think about evangelism is tell people i want them to know i'm a christian just let them know you're a christian And of course you have to be wise where you let people know that and you have to be as wise as a serpent and as harmless as a dove there's no virtue in stupidity or foolishness or naivete right But if you say something as simple as, in response to a question like, what did you do this weekend? If you say, well, I went to church. I heard a sermon on John 7. The sermon was about eternal life and giving the Spirit to those who believe. That could spark an opportunity for you to explain to that person who asked that question, well, how can they experience eternal life? So on the one hand, the Spirit empowers us to love one another. And evidence of eternal life is loving one another because that is a fruit of the Spirit. And that's where he's going to go later in John 13. But secondly, the invitation is share the gospel with people. You know, the older I get, I'm 45. I'm going to die soon, okay? My, the window of my life is closing. It's closing. 45 ain't 35. And the older I get, this is what I ask myself. I'm asking myself, look, who cares if I write 10 more books or zero books? But I care a great deal about someone being able to say, yeah, he had a lot of flaws, a lot of failures, a lot of mistakes. But he shared the most important story with me. He shared the gospel with me. So pray and ask the Lord to help you to do that. To every tongue and tribe and people and nation. Did you notice the text? Whoever, John 7, verse 37 and 38, whoever thirsts, let him come. Come one, come all. Anybody who wants Jesus can have him. And it's not my job to try to figure out who the elect are or who the elect aren't. It's my job to open my mouth and speak Jesus into darkness so that the Spirit would work and create faith in the hearts of those who hear the gospel so they'll repent and believe. The Spirit does that work, doesn't he? And whoever wants the Spirit can have him. Whoever wants eternal life can have him. And God may choose to use you. To be a means by which that cranky, crabby, mean neighbor to crack open his dead heart and to give him some living water. Third, application. There's an invitation for you today, if you're not a Christian, to turn from your sin. I know in a room like this, there are some of you here today who don't know Jesus. And quite frankly, it's really simple. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And God raised him from the dead. Because God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but would have eternal life. And whoever calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus for salvation can be saved. And if you turn from your sin right now, it does not matter. I want you to hear this, all right? It does not matter what you've done. There's no sin too great that God cannot liberate you from it. On the cross of Jesus, God nailed your sins to the cross. And He subjected the demons to public ridicule through the crucifixion of Jesus. Your debt is paid. If you turn from your sin and give your life to Christ, you can have eternal life. You can have living water. You can have the Spirit living in you, overflowing in you, giving you love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and compassion and self control. You can have deep communion with the Lord. You can have freedom from your sin. Don't y'all want to be free from your sin if you're not a believer? Don't you want to be free from your sin? Debt's canceled. If you turn from your sin this morning, if you don't know Jesus, and you simply ask him to come into your life and save you, you can be saved today. So brothers and sisters, God has given every one of us who believe in Jesus Christ, he's given us the gift of the Spirit. He's given us eternal life. He's given us living water. And he's fulfilled all of the redemptive promises in the Old Testament in Jesus Christ, his son. So may God help us to walk in the spirit who fills us by faith. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, We're thankful this morning for the promise of your word. Father, would you please this morning right now begin begin working in the hearts of us, your people. Stirring up in us affections by the power of the Spirit. Father, for those of us this morning who perhaps are walking out of step with the Spirit, would you help us, Lord, Because we've received life, help us to live in the power of that life. If there are broken relationships that need to be restored, would you please work supernaturally in our hearts so that they could begin the process of restoration? If there are sins of which we need to repent, lies, slander, gossip, backbiting, Lord, may the Spirit work now to convict us of those sins. And Father, for those here who might be struggling to take their faith to the streets, would you help us, Father, to open our mouths by the Spirit to share the greatest story ever told with our neighbors, our friends, family members? And then finally, Father, we pray for those who are not saved this morning. If there's one here who's outside of faith in Christ, would you awaken his heart or her heart right now and give them the the eyes of faith to cry out and say, Jesus, save me. And would you give them the strength to, to stick around after the service to talk with Pastor Michael or one of the other pastors about coming to know Jesus Christ by faith. We pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen.